0: Welcome to the first Tisky Sour of 2023. Happy New Year. I hope you had a nice, relaxing, restful, hopefully enjoyable break. We look forward to taking you through the next 12 months of British politics. It's unlikely it will be quite as wild as the last 12 months, just because that would be incredibly difficult, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out, let's say. Dahlia, are you feeling refreshed?
1: I'm feeling I'm feeling all right. I'm very surprised by your optimism that this year is not gonna be as Wild as the last year was. I feel like every year for the past like five years, we've been like, it can't possibly get any more out of control. And it always manages to. But I like your optimism.
0: (laughs) That is true. I am a glass half full kind of guy. But yeah, I definitely could get proved wrong. I mean, it could easily be worse than last year. I just think that in terms, I don't think we're going to have another three prime ministers, for example. So in terms of a show that covers lots of Westminster politics, it's hard to see how it's going to be more dramatic than the year that just was. I mean, our last story tonight is going to be on the the scariest story of the year, which is the climate change news, which is already coming through. But we're going to start by talking about Britain falling apart and Rishi Sunak's pretty dud attempt to gloss over that fact. Rishi Sunak has given his first speech of the year. Now, it was supposed to be a landmark event with the Prime Minister laying out his biggest and boldest ideas for the rest of his term. But despite countrywide industrial action, the NHS on life support and a cost-of-living crisis driving people into poverty, that big idea seemed to be more maths. At least that's how the speech was briefed to the papers. The Times went with this headline this morning. Compulsory maths until 18 for every school child. Apparently, Sunak is on a personal mission to reform education. And the Telegraph's front page had this. Maths at the heart of PM's vision for Britain. Now, this was the maths announcement at the heart of Rishi
2: Sunak's vision. We're one of the few countries not to require our children to study some form of maths up to the age of 18. Right now, just half of all 16 to 19 year olds study any maths at all. Yet in a world where data is everywhere and statistics underpin every job, letting our children out into that world without those skills is letting our children down. So we need to go further. I am now making numeracy a central objective of our education system. Now, that doesn't have to mean a compulsory A-level in maths for everyone, but we will work with the sector to move towards all children studying some form of maths to 18.
0: It wasn't the most inspiring of of speeches. Now, the education unions have pointed out that increasing maths education would be easier if there wasn't a dire shortage of maths teachers. That's, of course, a result of 12 years of wage cuts. And the general public don't seem too impressed either. Good morning, Britain asked their audience about Sunak's focus on maths.
3: Many, many comments about the fact that Rishi Sunak's keynote speech today is going to focus on teaching maths to children until the age of 18. Pamela says... You know, to the Prime Minister, it makes sense. You've got, say, £21,000 coming in and every penny accounted for. Your bills go up, so you've got to find out how many meals you can miss before you become too ill to work and pay your ever-increasing bills. Learn more maths. It makes sense. Emma Rose, if my treatment had started in a ward instead of three days on a trolley in a corridor, then I would not be missing my daughter's eighth birthday today. Get with reality. Need more maths? Wow. Most unrelatable Prime Minister ever. Bob on Twitter, it sounds like he thinks people are struggling financially because they can't manage their home budget. Unbelievable and an example of how much he doesn't understand people's situations. We're not
4: being selective. There hasn't been a single a single comment from you watching at home, anywhere in the country, in support of this, uh, this forthcoming speech later today. You, you're as baffled by it as the rest of us.
0: Now, of course, when it came to it, Zunac's speech wasn't all about maths, and it did contain some broader pledges.
2: Five, to be exact. So I want to make five promises to you today. Five pledges to deliver peace of mind. Five foundations on which to build a better future for our children and grandchildren. First, we will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. Second, we will grow the economy, creating better paid jobs and opportunity right across the country. Third, we will make sure our national debt is falling so that we can secure the future of public services. Fourth, NHS waiting lists will fall and people will get the care they need more quickly. Fifth, we will pass new laws to stop small boats, making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are detained and swiftly removed.
0: Now, you might have noticed there weren't timeframes given for all of those pledges. And the ones for which there was a deadline, like inflation falling, well, they've been long expected to happen. Anyway, in fact, the OBR is saying inflation should fall by two thirds. So if if we get uh, if it falls by a half, that's you know not as good as we're expecting even without any policy changes. It's not particularly impressive. Yet, regardless of the specifics of any pledge made, the biggest problem for Sunak was why the public would have any confidence in anything he says. Anyway, now that was a point well made by Beth Rigby, Prime Minister. Look, we know to expect a reassuring uh, performance from you, but in the real world. You can't get a train, you can't get a doctor's appointment, nurses are going to food banks. And when you do dial 999, you can't be sure that an ambulance is going to get there in time to save your loved one. That's the reality of Britain in 2023. And now you're here giving people more promises about how you might change the country that they've heard many times before, during 13 years of conservative rule. My question really is, why should the public
2: believe you're any different to any of your predecessors? Well, Beth, I think the country has seen me perform in the job before, through really difficult times. They saw me as Chancellor during COVID. In fact, most of them probably didn't know who I was until I appeared on that press conference on their TV screens. And I'm proud of the record that I have as Chancellor. I think we moved at enormous speed and with competence to actually deliver interventions that made a difference to people's lives, that saved their jobs, protected their businesses. And so people can trust that when I say I'm going to do something, I am going to do it. think the second thing is, I've been very clear, as I said today, unambiguous, made five very simple promises. The country's priorities are my priorities. I want to be held, account for them. I'm, there's no ambiguity about them. There's no tricks. People will know whether I'm delivering on these things. And I'm confident that we can. Wow. I really am. And you talk about the record, you know, actually, look, I'm not going to say the, the NHS wasn't under any pressure before COVID. Of course it was, but that you know, there were places where things were really improving. And you look at ambulance times, for example, category two, we are just about at target before COVID hit. And it's undeniable, though, that COVID has had an impact. I talked about the fact that elective surgery was paused during COVID. You can look at the same with cancer referrals. They were down by a third or two-thirds during COVID. Uh, And now, obviously, there are far more than normal, right? So that's why that's not performing as well as we would like it to, but it's improving. So, look, COVID has had an impact. It's not an excuse. This is one of my five promises. People know what I did for them during COVID as chancellor. And that's why I'm here today being very clear about what I'm going to deliver for them and the country as prime minister. I'm very confident we can do that. But ultimately, people will hold me to account for doing so.
0: Now, Sunak's the claim there was that the Tories were doing a good job on the NHS before COVID. Things were improving, he says. He mentioned ambulance service times, sorry, ambulance times, elective surgery and cancer treatments. Now, in September last year, the Nuffield Trust published a comprehensive report debunking this Tory lie. Let's start with ambulance times. Were they improving before COVID? Well, this graph shows ambulance response times for Category 2 incidents. That's the category that Sunak mentioned in his speech. These are emergency incidents, including heart attacks and strokes. Now, the thick purple line you can see here, that shows that between April 2018 and the start of the pandemic, those waiting times were slowly climbing. Now, the pink line shows the effect the pandemic has had on waiting times, and it's been dramatic. But it's just not true that waiting times were improving before COVID hit. Now, let's look at how many people are on waiting lists for elective care. From 2012 to the beginning of the pandemic, the number of people on waiting lists was steadily growing, going from 2.5 million to nearly 5 million. Now, the pandemic made things much worse. Again, the pink line shows how post-pandemic the number has grown even more steeply, but it was hardly a rosy picture before COVID. And we can also look at how long people are having to wait for their first cancer treatment. Now, the purple line here, that shows the percentage of people who got their first cancer treatment within two months of being referred. In 2012, around 90% of people were seen quickly. By the beginning of the pandemic, less than 80% of patients were being seen in time. Again, the pink line, shows how the pandemic made things worse. But cancer treatment waiting times weren't improving under the Tories before either. They were, in fact, getting worse. DALI, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's speech? You could say it's a difficult gig. I mean, not that I feel any sympathy for him. It was his party, his chancellorship that got us in this mess. But I mean, it's hard to save themselves from this sort of polycrisis with a few announcements. Did he make it any better, at least, for the Conservatives?
1: No, I think it's been a complete joke. And... You know, one thing that I, and it's horrible to say this, but I really do think that the Conservative Party see the pandemic as like a convenient excuse because they're able essentially to whitewash all of the systemic problems that were happening before the pandemic. And that actually made us more vulnerable to the pandemic by basically erasing all that historical context that you've just outlined and portray it as if, you know, we were all on track everything was going okay we were doing a good job and then this unexpected pandemic hit and any government would have suffered under it and you know that that's how we can kind of pin all of the the crises that we're dealing with right now on that kind of unexpected event and obviously we know that that is completely untrue we know that the quality and availability of nhs care has been declining for many years as a result of conservative policies. And we know that part of the reason why the pandemic hit us so hard, um, much harder than kind of comparable economies, is because our health infrastructure was already cut to the bone. So it couldn't handle even the slightest bit of pressure, let alone the immense pressure of a pandemic. And so that kind of, that's one thing that really jumped out to me during this speech. The other thing that really jumped out to me is I don't know how it took so long for the penny to drop for me, but with the making maths education compulsory until, until 18, with that being sort of his headline policy, it really struck me how much Rishi Sunak is just a lightweight. You know, I think that a lot of his public persona and a lot of the, the, the way that he is interpreted by the media is very much about this idea that, you know, this is a, a serious man. He is a financial heavy hitter. You know, he was really successful in the financial industry and he's bringing this now to, to government. Uh, he's not like Truss and, and um, Johnson, who have this kind of buffoonish image to them, but he's he's a real serious grown-up politician, right? That idea of the return of the grown-ups. But in reality, time and time again, we see... That this is just complete bluster. That when it comes to these, these really big moments, these big speeches, these big policy announcements where he's supposed to outline his, you know, vision for what he's going to do with a country that is under immense pressure from so many different angles. And it always ends up just being like this wishy washy kind of culture warsy style policy that like, no one was asking for, because it reminded me a lot of when he was in his leadership campaign and how his first policy announcement of his leadership campaign, which is, you know, the first headline that he's going to get the kind of the, the priority that he has as his pitch for prime minister. And it was what it was cracking down on gender neutral language and gender-neutral bathrooms. like That was his first big policy announcement. And to put that into context, that was in, I think, around July Um, 2022. I wish it was 2021. Then we wouldn't have had three prime ministers in the past year. July 2022. And for context, that was around the time that the Bank of England forecasted inflation to be Up by eleven percent. That the poorest twenty percent were earning just six percent of total income, and we had just heard that story about pensioners riding buses in order to keep warm because they can't afford their heating bills. And this so-called heavy hitter financial whiz, grown-up politician, decided that the priority of the country was to police what bathrooms and pronouns less than one percent of the population use. So I see this kind of math education policy in a similar vein to that. And it shows that this is really a pattern, because even though on the surface it doesn't seem to be kind of culture war-ish, it is an attempt to hit a particular, a kind of virtue signal towards a particular segment of the population. Luckily, I think if we're going to go by that GMB segment, it looks like it's failed. But the attempt is very much, it's what I call the we used to be a real country contingent, like this particular contingent of the population that is heavily invested in a politics of nostalgia because it feeds into kind of two common, you know, we used to be a real country ideas. The first one being that kind of Mickey Mouse degree trope, which I don't know if you remember, but it's this kind of whole idea that too many working class people are going into the the social sciences and the humanities into sort of unproductive degrees and education, And, you know, they need to be funneled into kind of real maths and STEM education. Obviously, the implication here being that any kind of education that involves critical analysis or, you know, sociological analysis is not for working class people. But also, again, and it it was gestured to in that GMB segment, the implication is that the reason that working class people are poor right now is because they can't budget well enough. Like they don't have enough numerical literacy. And whilst, you know, we could all benefit from sort of some kind of numerical literacy, particularly when it comes to sort of personal finances, you know, I would have loved it if my school taught me how to like fill in a self-assessment form so that I wasn't like raw-dogging it for the first time and had no idea what I was doing. But firstly, that's not what schools are generally teaching when it comes to maths. But also, even if that is at some point going to be a useful policy, so much needs to happen before then, um, before it gets to the point where, OK, the problem here really is, you know, financial literacy. Because when you are, you know, when working class people are facing their health and housing um, budgets being slashed when their wages have been decreasing in real terms for nearly 15 years, and when you know basic living costs like food and rent have been out of control, that's not a personal budgeting issue. That's not a like addition. That's not that people don't know their additions and subtractions and times tables well enough. You know, when you are spending a third of your income on rent and the other third of your income on childcare, you can't budget your way out of that problem. And so really to me, this this really communicates to me that Rishi Sunak is actually the, the one pattern that we see is that he's a complete lightweight. This image of him being a serious grown-up politician is just that. It's just an image. And that this maths education policy is just about Signaling towards a particular kind of culture war politics and nostalgia that shifts all the blame of systemic problems onto personal individual responsibility. And I'm very glad to see that, at least from some of the media coverage we're seeing and some of the responses, that the vast majority of the British people can see through it.
0: Before we move on to our next story, a quick announcement if you head to shop.navaramedia.com you can find our merch store. And if you like our journalism, buying Navarra Media merchandise is a great way to support our work. Right now, we are offering 10% off our entire store until the 15th of January. That link is shop.navarmedia.com. Next story. Over the Christmas break, an interesting phenomenon hit the UK press. It seems that all of a sudden, people from every political persuasion have recognized that Britain is a bit of a basket case. Now, the phenomenon is perhaps best summed up in this headline in the centre-right Economist magazine, The Strange Case of Britain's Demise, uh, subtitle. A country that prided itself on stability has seemed to be in freefall. Who done it? Now, we'll get on to the issue of blame in a moment. But first the economists provided a number of graphs to evidence Britain's demise. And this was the most arresting of them. So it's showing the level of median incomes in Britain and comparable countries over time. And it shows just how bad Britain has been doing over the last decade. In the US, for example, since 2010, median household income has grown from just under $35,000 to just under $45,000. That's a big increase. In the UK, the median household gets by on only $28,000. So $45,000 in the US, $28,000 in the UK. As you can see, since 2008, our incomes have been overtaken um, by Germany and France. We used to have a higher incomes and then we don't anymore. And the gap is growing. What's more, for most people, the reality is even worse than what's shown there. That's because as well as having lower average incomes in similar countries, we also have higher levels of of inequality, this was Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation speaking to the News Agents podcast late last year.
2: Take five countries that we're like we think of ourselves as comparable to. So like france germany the netherlands from europe but then add canada and australia which i think british people generally think are poorer than us or the same as us they're now way richer than us take those five those are all richer than us and all more equal than us okay if we had the same gdp per capita and the same inequality as them then the typical british household would be eight thousand eight hundred pounds better off okay that is why it feels like a catastrophe because we're paying the same gas prices as them because these are traded products yeah? Yeah. So when everyone says, oh, it doesn't matter if Britain just gets poor, we've still got to pay global prices for stuff, I'm afraid. So it really matters. And that is what economic failure looks like over decades.
0: So did you catch that? If we had the same GDP per capita and the same levels of equality as the average of Canada, Australia, Germany, France, and the Netherlands, the average household in the UK would be £8,800 better off. £8,800 better off. Now, that's huge. That's a huge difference. How how big a difference would £8,800 a year make to your life? Now, if we just lived in one of those other countries, that's what we'd be looking at because Britain is a basket case. So what caused this disaster? Well, the Economist article I showed you blamed Brexit, Britain's supposed aversion to conflict, sort of a lot of these long-term kind of vague ideas I mean, it's a fairly right-wing free market newspaper. Maybe it couldn't see the wood for the trees. I think Britain's other main financial paper, though, had a much better explanation. Now, just before Christmas, the chief data reporter at the Financial Times declared this. Britain's winter of discontent is the inevitable result of austerity. Goes A decade of Tory spending cuts left the country vulnerable to the external shocks of the past two years. John Byrne Murdoch provided a number of very useful charts to prove his point there. Now, in all the charts, he's comparing Britain to what he calls peer countries. They're made up of Austria, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Finland, France, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the US. So countries we think of as similar to our own. Now, in this chart, you can see how wages have changed relative to those peer countries over time in Britain. But unlike The Economist, the FT have marked when Labour and the Tories were in power. So under the 1997 to 2010 Labour governments, British wages rose above the average of those peer countries. After the Tories came to power, it sunk below that average. So a big difference. And the difference between Labour and Tory governments is even more striking in the next two charts. Now, this one shows wage growth between 1997 and 2010 in the UK compared to the 11 other peer countries. Wages in Britain over the new Labour years rose by nearly 30%. Now, that was the second highest growth rate in the countries listed. Now, let's look at wage growth under the Tories. As you can see, after 2010, wages fell, and Britain performed way, way worse than any of our peer countries. This is a really, really striking graphic. The average wage growth for the 12 countries, including Britain, was 8%. In Britain, wages fell by 5%. So everywhere else, the average increased by 8%. Here, falling by five percent. That's huge. That's the story about wages. It's even worse when it comes to public services. This is the size of NHS waiting lists under Labour and the Tories. They tumble when the Labour Party are in charge and then rocket under the Conservatives. It's not particularly complicated what you're seeing here. This next graph shows the number of people waiting to be seen within four hours at accident and emergencies in Britain. Under Labour, this was close to 100% for five consecutive years, always above 95%. As soon as the Tories came to power, you can see the service collapsed. Again, pretty easy to interpret that graph there. Now we can ask, why did this happen? You know, why is it pretty decent under Labour and terrible under the Conservatives? Well, the answer is pretty clear. It's austerity. Lib Dems also, of course, implicated. Again, These next charts are comparing Britain to the 11 peer countries I listed earlier, and they show how much harsher austerity was here than in the other countries mentioned. Now, this is the level of government spending as a proportion of GDP over time. In Britain, it collapsed from around 46% in 2010 to less than 40% in 2020. That puts us way below the average of our peers and this next chart is perhaps the most shocking. It shows how Britain has generally invested less money than our peer countries in healthcare. You see, way below the average there. This is fixed capital we're looking at. So we're talking hospitals, machinery, the kind of things that makes the labor of our doctors and nurses productive there was one brief period where we matched the average. That was because it rocketed under New Labour. Towards the end of that New Labour era, we just sort of touched that average. And then as soon as the Tories and Lib Dems come to power, it collapses. We invest way, way less than any of the other countries listed, any of those countries we think of as like ourselves in healthcare. And that means, you know, no wonder the health service is collapsing. Again, it's not rocket science. Now, apologize for the technicalities. That was quite a lot of charts I just showed you. Thank you to John Byrne Murdoch for assembling them. But even though, you know, it can be complex to look at so many charts, I do think it is probably the best explanation of how we got in the mess we are currently in. Dahlia, I want your take on this. I mean, we, we've talked about this a lot on this show. So I suppose I want to ask you specifically about The Economist and the FT And it seems now kind of everyone, everyone seems to have as a common assumption, oh, yeah, the British economy sucks. Oh, yeah, management over the past 12 years have been pretty poor. You know, we used to hear for for decades that austerity was the only option. There is no alternative. Now everyone's sort of, no one's really addressing their past support of it and is just saying, oh, yeah, of course, austerity was a mistake.
1: Yeah. And kind of acting like the consequences that we're living in right now are somehow disconnected from, austerity and there's a sense this idea that austerity is over of course when you look at it actually proportionally public spending has in real terms is still falling so austerity in real terms is not over but there's this kind of narrative of like oh well um you know austerity as an official policy is done and so you know there's been this clean historical break between what has happened over the past 10 years And what is currently happening now? And this is where, again, the pandemic comes in as this like convenient excuse and this like framing device or reframing device that the conservatives use to kind of whitewash over that history. But, but when you were talking, it actually made me think about, uh, you know, I mean, anyone that's traveled outside of Britain in the past sort of couple of years will know that there is a general consensus that like the Brits aren't okay. I was actually speaking to a Dutch nurse. The other day, and she was saying, you know, she was talking about how, you know, she wants to live abroad somewhere at some point. And when I suggested London, you know, I was like, would you ever want to move to London or move to, to Britain? And she said, you know, oh, I would never work in the NHS. Like, this is someone who's never actually worked in the NHS, but just from the outside, she's like, as a nurse, I hear what British nurses say about what it's like to work in the NHS. I would never work there. So that is really the kind of reputation that is prominent in the rest of the world i think that the the ft the question of the ft and the economist i think actually the, the the slight differences in how they contextualize the the crisis that we're in now is is actually really interesting because the economist kind of goes for goes for brexit obviously and this very like wishy-washy idea that you know britain is conflict averse which i don't think a country that colonized a fifth of the world's population and, you know, invaded Iraq, invaded Afghanistan can be accurately described as conflict-averse. And that's also some kind of we used to be a real country rubbish. The Brexit explanation, you know, it might have more, it has more weight to it, for sure. Brexit was an incredibly consequential thing to happen. But we also know that this decline in living standards, this decline in wages was happening long before Britain left the EU. Like this was a downward spiral. And whilst Brexit might have sped up parts of that spiral, it didn't cause it because these problems were in the system beforehand. And so we see that the economist is going for these kind of quite vague, wishy washy explanations that, you know, essentially tell their readers what they think their readers want to hear. Whereas I think the FT was a lot more honest because the FT is actually the newspaper of the financial elite. And so in a sense, I find the FT to be sort of one of the most honest forms of media or more honest media outlets, mainstream media outlets that we have. And I think that admission in the FT that austerity is the cause of many of the problems we are facing now is in many ways a tacit admission amongst the financial elite of what many of us know to be true which is that as much as they like to denigrate the concept of a public sector you know the wealth of the financial elite is actually generated in part off the backs of the public sector so you know whether we're talking about the infrastructure that you know private companies rely on to run telecommunications networks roads you know railways all of these things or whether it's the public sector plugging the wage gap so you have you know workers not being paid A real living wage, and then having to have their salaries topped up by Social Security, for example, and having healthcare and having housing to make sure that even if their wages aren't high enough, they can still be, you know, they can still continue to be workers. They can still reproduce themselves. They're not going to sort of die, essentially. So that is what is meant by a stable economy. It's an economy that has a resilient infrastructure, which means public spending. And so it seems that the FT and amongst the financial elite, there is this understanding that the public sector has been so gutted that it can no longer deliver on that. And that is why you can then go one of two ways. Either you can argue for increased public spending and increased state investment, or you can do what I think a lot of, a lot of the conservatives are going to do, which is argue that the public sector is in such a failed state that it has to be privatised, which would only intensify all of these problems. As we can see, for example, with the fact that our our trains are privatised and how that has caused, that hasn't been good for workers and it hasn't been good for the public. And so I think that that's kind of the the juncture that we're at now. And that's why I'm going to take the FT's framing as much more honest than The Economist, because I think the audience of the FT is actually quite different to The Economist. And in the in, in the FT, it's very much the financial elite communicating with one another. And so that's quite significant, I think, that, that that shift has happened in that particular sector of society.
0: It's worth noting, it really is a shift as well. John Burr Murdoch, you know, whose graphs we're showing you, who wrote that article, I don't think he ever backed austerity. I've got no idea, to be honest. But the Financial Times, the paper did. So I've just got in front of me a, a one of their leaders from 2010. They said, the coalition has been strong on the rhetoric of austerity. It must now follow through with deeds as well as words. And they're actually complaining that the eighty twenty 20 split between spending cuts and tax rises, they're saying, oh, you better keep to that. They, they should not turn to more tax rises. So they were very much in favor of, you know, the most reactionary form of austerity. Um, I'm not sure if they've published an apology. They probably should do. I think that would be somewhat welcome. I, I at least hope they are having some tough conversations inside the paper. How did we end up backing such a disastrous policy which has crippled the UK economy and so many people's life opportunities? Like it's, it's, it's a very serious mistake to have made. Next story. We've got a lot to get through. Rail strikes are continuing this month, and there's a blame game going on as to who's responsible for a deal on paying conditions still not being reached. Transport Secretary Mark Harper and RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch have been out on the airways putting forward their respective sides of the story. This was Mark Harper
5: on Sky. There was reporting before Christmas that ministers (laughs) had got involved at the last minute Mm -hmm. and had put a block on a deal being signed between the union and the rail delivery groups. Is that true no that absolutely isn't true and in fact since i became transport secretary a couple of months ago uh, i met all the union leaders uh, i tried to change the tone of the discussions and i said that ministers would help facilitate the trade unions and the employers that's the train operating companies and network rail getting around the table i made sure there was a new and improved offer that went to uh, trade union members that's why two of the unions have settled uh, on network rail the rmt recommended though sadly that their members should reject that but even so a third of their members wanted to accept it so look i think in the new year it's time for the rmt to get off the picket line back round the negotiating table and ministers will do what we can to facilitate them coming to a deal with the employers i want to get these rail um, disputes sorted out for the benefit of the traveling public That was Mark
0: Harper saying that contrary to reports, the government hadn't been preventing the rail companies and the RMT coming to a deal. Mick Lynch disputed that account.
6: So what we need to hear now from the government is is exactly what it is they're going to propose to us. At the moment, they, they got themselves into a position before Christmas where we were making progress with the train operating companies. And on one Sunday afternoon before a set of strike action, they decided to torpedo those talks by putting in conditions on, in the documentation that they know that we and the other unions can never accept. So that was a deliberate strategy which frustrated the train operating company executives. The most senior people in the industry are as frustrated as we are that the government will not facilitate a settlement and indeed is taking the opposite tack of undermining efforts to get a settlement. They know that we can't accept the current proposal, so we need to get a fresh uh, set of elements in the equation so that we can work up some solutions rather than uh, just put in some warm words. So as soon as Mark Harper and his team want to meet us, we'll be available.
5: OK, well, look, he said he wants to meet you this week, but you're on the picket line, so he says he's going to meet you next week. But on that specific point about torpedoing... Well, I'll, meet him, putting a, I'll meet him at hold on, hold on, if Mr.
6: Lynch, me, I don't to stay on this picket line Let me day. put the
5: question to you first, Mr Lynch. Hold on, sorry, sorry one sec. Uh, on that particular point about uh, the government torpedoing uh, the negotiations, I put that to him just now. He said that that's just not true. They haven't done that.
6: Well, he's not telling you the truth. Because we had a document with the train operating companies that did not include driver-only operation. It was taken away for approval in Whitehall at the DFT and they inserted about eight or nine bullet points that completely undermined the negotiations. That was a direct intervention of government ministers. We know that to be true. And if he's saying that didn't happen, he's simply not telling you the whole truth.
0: So Mick Lynch is saying Harper is essentially lying. The RMT were close to an agreement with the rail companies, but then the government inserted a bunch of conditions which the RMT couldn't accept. And this relates to
5: another point Mark Harper made in that Sky interview. There has been a fair and reasonable offer on the table, which is comparable to what most people listening to this programme will have got across the economy. Uh, two trade unions accepted it, that offer from Network Rail. Uh, the RMT are holding out against it, and I hope they get back round the negotiating table and off the picket lines, and we can try and hammer out a deal between the employers and the trade well, unions. And that's-, that's a point you'll hear the government making
0: again and again over the coming weeks. They say there are two unions which have accepted the latest offer made by Network Rail, and so the RMT should do say. Now, the other unions in this case are Unite and the TSSA. And on the face of it, that's a pretty strong argument from the government. If a deal is good enough for Unite and the TSA, for these two unions, why shouldn't it be good enough for the RMT? The implications, because the RMT are so militant, they won't accept what other workers see as reasonable. Now, to that question, Mick Lynch gave this answer on LBC.
6: Two trade unions that are accepted are minuscule and they're not affected by the changes. So you've got a white-collar union, the TSSA, who are supervising our people that are out there doing the shifts in general. They're not affected by the changes and they've decided to accept it. That's fair enough. But they're tiny. Unite on the railway of... If they've got 100 members out of 40,000 Unite work, uh, uh, network rail mm. workers, that's probably a good estimate. And they're not affected. They're office-based. Our members are out on the track running the stations repairing the rails, putting up the overhead line and all the rest of it. And they are profoundly affected by the changes that they want to make. So we have not accepted it because of the conditions. The payoff is not very uh, exciting either. We haven't had a pay rise in network rail for four years now. And it's way below the rate of inflation. But most of our members are agitated by the conditions. If we don't accept the conditions, we don't get a pay deal. If we don't accept the conditions, we won't get a job security deal. And our members will be made compulsorily redundant. So we've got a a gun to our temple in that sense.
0: That's a pretty decent explanation as to why Mark Carper's point probably isn't valid. Now, the TSA and Unite were offered the same deal as the RMT on pay, but for the RMT, the biggest block to a deal is conditions. And the changes being proposed to conditions is not the same across different parts of the network rail workforce. Of course, we're discussing here the dispute with network rail. There's also a separate dispute with all the various rail companies. But in both cases, you've got a similar situation where the government is trying to impose changes to terms and conditions of RMT members in exchange for real terms pay cuts. It doesn't seem like a particularly strong offer from the government. Dahlia, will the government's attempt at divide and rule between different parts of the workforce work in this instance?
1: I think Mick Lynch did a, a really great um, job of explaining why some unions would accept this and, and others won't. And I think that that particularly um, when he talks about exactly who the RMT represents and distinguishing between the different issues that the workers have and how different unions will, will prioritise different issues, I think that was a brilliant and really clear way of explaining it. You know, I mean, public support for the rail strikes has, has waned ever so slightly. You know, we're looking at about 43% of the public who are supporting the rail strike, which is, you know, a few months ago, that was above 50%. But I think we have to understand that, like, this was to be expected. And I don't think that the RMT are necessarily surprised because the, what the government is doing by deliberately thwarting and putting conditions on the table that they know the RMT as the biggest union representing on-the-ground rail workers cannot accept, it's engineered failure, which is deliberately a way to break down that public support. And that engineered failure works in two ways. Firstly, it's a way of setting an example to the rest of the workforce, not just in the rail sector, but across the board. Uh, The Conservatives know That union organizing is is very strong in comparison to recent decades across a range of sectors, including sectors that have never gone on strike before, such as the nurses. And by kind of trying to to stigmatize and make the most, the strongest union, because the RMT has, you know, is one of the strongest unions in, in the country and has been for quite a long time now. They can essentially—it's a way of threatening the rest of the sector by saying you might, en- you nurses, for example, might enjoy public support right now. You know, two thirds of the public support the nurses on strike right now. But if you keep going in this way, you'll be, you know, stigmatized in the way that the rail workers are being stigmatized. And another reason that you know the the, the conservatives are engineering failure as a way of of breaking down the the uh, the, the union movement is also as a way of stigmatising union membership in general. Um, You know, this is a page right out of Thatcher's book. Because, you know, when you think about the winter of discontent, that image and memory of, you know, bins piling up in the street, etc., the country coming to a halt, successfully saw a decline in union membership and organising that lasted several decades. And so you have that short-term assault on popularity by setting an immediate example to the rest of the workforce. And that kind of long-term attempt to associate being active in your union and, an, and a strong labour movement not with eventually better quality and condition uh, uh, quality and conditions of work, but actually by associating it with decline, even though that decline, as we know, is as a result of the government of employers refusing to make good on very reasonable demands. And so I'm sure that this hasn't taken Mick Lynch by surprise, this divide-and-conquer rule and all of these strategies. They're actually quite old-fashioned Thatcherite strategies. And I think that he's incredibly prepared, as we saw in that that media outlet, because let's not forget, the objective of strike action is not to be the most popular kid on the block. That helps, but that's not the objective. The objective is to actually win. And that is what Mick Lynch and the rest of the RMT are keeping their eye on, and that's really good. And it's very important that the rest of the union movement, whether it's in the rail sector or across different sectors, understand that the success or failure of one movement of one union will determine and is is relevant to the success and failure of other unions um, across the workforce. You know, their success is our success, and so that solidarity. Um, between different sectors against that public opinion assault by the government is incredibly important.
0: Now, I had a little, um, you know, moment of panic this morning, but luckily for me, I managed to basically switch off from the news cycle for a couple of weeks over Christmas and New Year. I was like, what's happened? Am I going to be completely out of touch with everything that's going on? Well, it turns out, I mean, not luckily, of course, because these are all pretty bad news stories, The British economy is still in free fall. The government is still refusing to make any kind of deal with public sector workers or workers in industries, which they have basically oversight of, and an intensifying crisis in the NHS. As I say, all bad news stories, but not really changing, constant. And that is our next story as well. The NHS is in crisis, possibly bigger than any we've seen before. Doctors have said that long delays in patients' access to urgent and emergency care could be causing up to 500 avoidable deaths each week. Ambulances in London have been told to hand over patients to A&E departments whether or not there are beds available for them. And the number of people waiting more than 12 hours to be admitted to A&E has increased by 355% since last November. But statistics can only get one so far. And on Good Morning Britain, Dr. Hilary Jones gave us an even more vivid insight into what's going on in our hospitals. He's describing posts in a WhatsApp group, which includes 13,000
4: doctors. There are thousands of these posts, and I've just picked three of them here as examples, and they are, they are very worrying. In our hospital, we have such a long wait to get into the acute medical unit, the admissions unit, that we have a junior doctor on the roster called the car triage. The car triage. Car triage. This means they spend their whole shift checking on people waiting outside in their cars terms. So,
5: the... so, a doctor specifically assigned yeah.
4: to go out to the go car, and park. check on people in cars because there's no room in the corridors. And that's either. the only thing that they do. On that's their what shift. they do on this. They're ship. in the car. Park. Yeah. That's wow. that's that's the first one. Second one. New terms that this doctor has learned this week: reverse boarding. The term used to explain the process of kicking a patient out of a resus cubicle space in emergency care and placing them on a corridor so that a more critical patient can take their place. Today, we did this so a patient could die anywhere other than in the corridor.
3: So Good they God. had a patient who was dying.
4: In the corridor. Who was in
3: the corridor. They had to remove a patient who was being cared for in a bed because they were in a better state. Indeed. So that they could put the dying patient into a bed.
4: Yeah. What right. a decision to have to make! Absolutely, and here's another one. This is the, again, this is not unusual. Twice this month, I have had patients miss the window for thrombosis and/or thrombectomy, which refers to the use of clot busting drugs right. to stop brain damage in someone who's had a stroke. We've missed the window, which is two hours because they've been sat in an ambulance in our hospital car park for too long. That's two people with life-changing disabilities that could have been prevented. I am heartbroken. And people are saying for the first time in their careers, they're in tears at the end of their shift. And when they return to the next shift, the same patients are still waiting to be seen after 24 hours. These are just a small sample of what's going on. And for Rishi Sunak and the government to pretend that this is not a crisis when more than a dozen trusts have announced critical incidents is not only delusional, as the BMA BMA say, I would say that at the very best, it's ill-informed misjudgment. At the very worst, it's total irresponsibility and incompetence. (laughs) There are just so many layers of tragedy to this story. I mean,
0: people with life-changing disabilities because they're waiting in car parks. They've got to hospital, right? They've got to hospital. They've called the ambulance. The ambulance has come. It's probably taken a bit longer than they were expecting, but they're relieved when it arrives there. Then they get to hospital, and they're waiting in the, the car park. I mean, probably most people watching this, probably you probably waited a while in in A&E at some point, you know, with a broken arm or or something which has been painful, it's been an unpleasant experience. But if you're sitting there and waiting while you're getting a permanent life-changing disability because you cannot be seen in time, that is a level of state failure which I think, you know, 10 years ago we just wouldn't really have been able to imagine. And now it's just the norm. And one of the other many layers of tragedy there, sort of listening to that account, I just feel for these Doctors and nurses and healthcare staff, ambulance drivers, who are having to go to work every day in the toughest conditions, and then see people get life-changing disabilities or die. I mean, lots of people are dying because they're not getting treated quick enough because they can't treat them. Like, how horrifically depressing would that be? You know, in, in in this, you know, it's mundane enough. But, you know, in the studio, something's not quite working, you feel like, oh god, that show wasn't as good as it could have been because you know, I'd done something wrong in the script or we didn't have quite enough time or someone's off sick, you know, it's a bit frustrating. But if you think, oh, I wasn't able to do my job properly today. And so two people died and someone got a life changing illness in their car while they were waiting for me to see them. Like, I can't imagine how traumatic that is. And then we say, how have we got this? Oh, I can't believe we've got this NHS crisis when it comes to staffing. We're giving them real-time pay cuts. The least we can do is say, we are so sorry we put you in this dreadful position. We are going to change it as soon as possible. Um, but obviously, it's going to take a little bit of time. But in the meantime, anything you want, we're going to give it to you, right? <laughs> we're putting you in this disgusting situation. The least we can do is give you a decent pay rise, let's say, to compensate you for this horrific experience we're putting you for on a day-to-day basis. Instead, we've said, no, go to work, work yourselves to death, Watch people die because you don't have enough time to treat them. Oh, and by the way, you should also accept a real terms pay cut. And you wonder why the nurses are on strike, right? And the doctors are soon to be on strike. And basically everyone in the public is like, good for you doctors, good for you nurses, because this is completely unacceptable what's going on. And it's very obvious who the culprits are, is the conservative party. Let's go on to our final story. Um, Very quick, this one, but a very big deal. Large parts of Europe have seen unseasonably warm temperatures this winter, with the warmest ever January day being recorded in eight countries. Now, that's good news for energy bills, but terrifying news for the planet. Now, this map shows some of the places where new records were set. They include the Netherlands, Denmark, and Latvia, while Poland, Czechia, and Belarus saw especially high temperatures. Now, in some places, previous records weren't just beaten, they were smashed. Now, Belarus felt its warmest ever winter temperature of 16.4 degrees Celsius. That's 4.5 degrees higher than its previous record. Now, normally when records get broken, it's by 0.1 degrees or whatever. This was 4.5 degrees. Meanwhile, at the same time, parts of Poland enjoyed temperatures of 19 degrees Celsius. Now, that's 18 degrees higher than the usual average of just one degree for this time of year. So, if you went to Poland this time of year, or if you're in Poland this time of year, you'd expect the temperature to be one degrees. Instead, it's 19 degrees. Now, I've given up on my dream of going to get a little bit of January sun, and it turns out I don't have, you know, the time or the resources right now, but when I was looking just before Christmas, I was looking at the Canary Islands, like, which is the hottest Canary Island? You say, oh, the average temperature in Tenerife is 19 degrees. Oh, that could probably be worth the trip. If you go to Poland right now, where the average temperature is one degree, it's, just, it's, it's what you'd expect the Canary Islands to be. This is not remotely normal. Now, obviously, meteorologists are also accepting this is not remotely normal. I should say accepting, I mean, they're sounding the alarm that this is not remotely Normal. Alex Burkle is a senior meteorologist with the Met Office. He told The Guardian this. It's been extreme heat across a huge area, which is almost, to be honest, unheard of. It has been widespread. Denmark, Czech Republic, as well as pretty much the whole of Germany have seen temperatures for January exceeding records. In the UK, as you've probably noticed, our winter temperatures haven't broken any records yet. It's not particularly warm in the UK right now. But It turns out December was the only one of the previous 12 months not to be hotter than average, with 2022 having been declared the hottest year on record. You know, these records were broken on the 1st of January. So, I mean, it it didn't take long for us to get our first terrifying climate story this year. I presume we can expect a lot more over the next 12 months.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the impact of countries like Britain, like the US countries that have a huge historical responsibility for emissions, for climate breakdown, doing barely anything um, when it comes to their historical responsibility for not only um, supporting a transition to a green economy, to a decarbonized economy, but also for investing in the kinds of infrastructures in particularly in countries of the global south that are more vulnerable, to help mitigate from the impacts of climate change that are already underway. Uh, Britain, in particular, likes to talk a really big game about how, you know, we're a climate leader and we're committed to all these targets, net zero by 2050. Da But in reality, just a, just at the end of last year, we had a story where Britain had commissioned a new coal mine. A new coal mine in 2022, with everything that we know, and the argument was, you know, oh well, um, this is going to bring, um, this is going to allow us to stop importing steel, which is going to be made in, you know, less green conditions or whatever. Not true. The steel industry in the country, in this country, said that they won't use any of the coal that comes from that Cumbria coal mine because of the sulfur content or something. I'm not a steel maker. But essentially they said that that coal was useless to them. Uh, And then the other argument was, oh, well, this is going to bring really good jobs. Jobs in the fossil fuel industry are notoriously not good. And also the fact that we are allegedly having to resort to opening a coal mine in order to create jobs shows just how far behind Britain is when it comes to where we should be. We should already have a fully costed, outlined, clear industrial strategy that demonstrates how we are going to transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to a clean energy-based economy. And in a way that protects workers' rights, generates jobs. There are lots of jobs to be made in the in the green transition, in a just transition. And this government doesn't have the will or the skill in order to produce that strategy. And so this is the knock-on effect of that lack of political strength essentially, and that, that making these obscene decisions like opening a new coal mine and essentially refusing to face, face the reality of that, this situation. And what is more depressing than ever is the fact that all of the core issues we have spoken about throughout the show, whether it's funding healthcare, whether it's giving public sector workers a real terms wage increase, whether it's supporting working conditions to become more secure, for example. These are all things that could be part and parcel of a just transition, because ultimately the policies that would involve reorienting our government um, and our economy away from extraction and away from just making a small number of executives, in particular destructive industries, wealthy at the expense of the rest of us, or investing in things that just make profit for a small number of people, but actually orienting our economy towards something that is care-based and towards something that is people-based and that holds people and planet at it, as its priority, that is something that can actually address all of the core issues that we have discussed throughout this show. And instead, um, what we've seen this government do is commission new fossil fuel projects. And at a time when the, the illogical economy of a fossil fuel company as we've seen with the fact with the with the energy crisis the volatility the instability of an energy system based on fossil fuels which could have been a golden opportunity to actually transition to make strides towards transitioning away from fossil fuels instead of doing that you know for example by imposing a windfall tax instead of doing that this government decided to essentially save fossil fuel companies by robbing us blind in our energy bills. So at time and time again, despite this government claiming to be a climate leader, when it comes to the important decisions, they have always sided with fossil fuel companies over everyday people. And that's how we're in this, this really terrifying mess that we're, that, that we're in now.
0: It's a depressing end to the show, but it's been a pleasure to be joined by you again, Dahlia, And thank you to our audience for tuning in. We'll be back on Friday, same time, same place, 7pm. We will see you then. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramediacom support.